Morning, everybody. I'm Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I'm filling in for James today as he is away at a church conference. Uh, both he and Sarah were able to defy the illness odds and get away just to focus on each other and on ministry for a bit. Uh, but you can definitely pray for their travels. Uh, they're actually in Orlando um, and headed back here soon. So would you pray with me before we launch in? Lord, would you fill this place with your spirit? Uh, that your presence would be tangible among us. Lord, speak your words of truth to us. Uh, would we hear your voice this morning and not mine? Amen. All right, so we just started a new series in Acts. Um, and if you missed James' introduction last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen. He did a great job of balancing the important context of the book, kind of the introduction there, uh, and some of the interesting and amazing details um, but he went along with capturing God's heart for the church up to and including us. Um, several things that he taught really stuck out to me. Um, the first uh, may be obvious, but that this is the gospel of the Holy Spirit. It's the narrative of God's spirit building the church. Um, and the other is that the, the, this particular book acts as descriptive rather than prescriptive. Uh, there are fundamental truths there that we can take from it and apply to our context, but if we try to directly employ all of the methods and actions we see there, we might miss the mark. Uh, like much of the Bible, we can see God's revealed heart for humanity and grasp onto it rather than make a checklist of rules and policies. Well, that's a great launch pad for us today. Uh, there's a description of what the environment was like in Acts for the early church, starting out in uh, chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. It says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So James asked me to share a little bit kind of what's on my heart, what's on my mind. Um, he is a risk taper, taker. Um, but I want to take uh, this opportunity. I'd like to, to start by ruminating a bit with you about the church. I have a lot of thoughts. Um, as much as I relish it, we're going to save the exegetical approach to Acts, the, the verse-by-verse review uh, for when James comes back next week. Today we're going to take a step back and talk about Acts as a whole, uh, the beginning of the church. I'm going to take a personal view to address some of the, several of the big questions that come up, at least in my mind. Uh, the first being, why the church? I realize that in sharing on the church to the church, there's a bit of preaching to the choir. Um, you're already here, so you've probably walked through a lot of these thoughts and issues, uh, but I also know that there's a fair number of us uh, here who struggle with what church has become. Or maybe you're just simply curious and don't have a faith of your own. You're testing things out just to see what this is. Uh, I hope you can all find relevant nuggets as we dig in. So let me give you a little background as I share some of the perspective I've developed wrestling with the ins and outs of the church. I was born into a family of Jesus freaks. 
My parents grew up in the 50s and were part of the movement and revival of the 60s in Southern California. Sorry, part of the Jesus movement. Like many young people at the time, they rejected their largely Catholic roots and joined the counterculture with so many other hippies. Jesus found them in their question-everything attitudes and shook them to the core. They were saved and lived a deeply personal and passionate faith. When I came along, I was introduced to a Jesus that was very real, very alive, very active. He was as present as any other member of our household. In those early days after they committed their lives to the Lord, my parents jumped into anything and everything that could bring them closer to their Savior. They joined a church with older, more mature Christians. Now, there's still some mystery to it because they've never really articulated exactly what happened, but things went badly. They were burned out on the organized church, and it impacted everything after. They left the church, and they never went back. For years, I heard the line, we just can't do church as it's done. Carrying that countercultural mindset that they had, they maintained an independence that really almost bordered on rebellion. They opted out of anything having to do with the church. We would hang out with other Christian friends who had similar experiences and exercised our faith, in, at least in that community. Uh, we were part of a small group that, um, crazy to do, they even followed God's call and moved to Washington together uh, over in Sunny Squim, completely sight unseen. Uh, but there was never any move towards a church-type functioning uh, that was formal or organized or that included outsiders. As most of us would have done, I adopted the environment I grew up in. I began to reject anything to do with church because that was really all I knew. Those churches, they're stuffy, they're stodgy. They're full of people clinging to the perfectly sculpted hair and suits. Yeah, I have some deep-seated issues with perfectly sculpted hair. <laughs> but they seemed more concerned with outward appearance than the internal. I remember being invited to a kid's vacation Bible school by a neighbor. The environment was nothing like anything I'd experienced in any other part of my life. There were rules and language that I didn't understand and made no sense. It was completely foreign, unfamiliar, uncomfortable. A friend of mine I was speaking to recently stepped into a difficult church environment and described a scene similar to what I felt back then as a kid, that those inside make you feel like you aren't a believer. Even with some of those things, I, I assumed a lot and really only saw the worst of the church. Jumping back to the beginning of Acts in the early church, we see the post-Jesus environment following Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. It begins where the Gospel of Luke left off. God had shifted the equation and lovingly carried out his plan of redemption, which he designed from the very first to draw people back to his original intentions. He restored the plan of life and spent an, plan of life spent an intimate relationship with us no longer separated by our inability to leap the divide that sin and rebellion brought. He acted. Jesus sacrificed. He made a way where there was no way. It was the good news. It was a reality-shaking thing that had happened. But it took place with Jesus, a single God-man in one tiny nation. 
the whole of humanity needed to know that the world had changed entirely forever. After the resurrection, Jesus returned and spent time with his disciples. He appeared, he taught, he was alive again. Surely, in his power, he'd travel to all those nations, the ends of the earth, and explain exactly what he'd accomplished and why. But that's not what happened. Jesus left and returned to the Father. It was as if the sacrifice that he gave, that shedding of blood for humanity, wasn't plot twist enough. He lays down part two to the plot twist. Acts 1.8 says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. God's got the power. He could have done a universal uh, public service announcement to let everyone know that this change had just happened directly from his mouth. But instead, he chose to use the very people he had just redeemed to spread the word, communicated the most basic tenets of faith and salvation and who he is into ever-expanding circles. Mankind became the instruments by which the knowledge of God and his heart is shared, both informationally and experientially. Beginning with the disciples and other witnesses, they taught about what God's kingdom was like and demonstrated how to live within that kingdom. They were examples of selfless love. This ragtag bunch of misfits was becoming the church. So right here, let's pause it for a second and identify church, uh, that term, this growing collective of believers. So if we take a look at the meaning of the word church and where it comes from, um, both Jesus and Paul used the word ekklesia, uh, it's a Greek word for church. Um, it means assembly, and it was around a long time before the events of the New Testament. Now, often an ecclesia was a, um, a civic gathering. It was associated with uh, a public forum, so to speak, uh, where people came together for a collective purpose. Interestingly, neither Jesus nor Paul chose to use the word synagogue, which they were very familiar with, which is also an assembly, uh, possibly because of the connotations of being tied to a particular place. The church, or ecclesia, was a spiritual assembly of people, whether together or not, and definitely not a building. So the more modern word that we use, church, was derived from the old English, oh man, cerise. I'm going uh, Greek, English, German, um, We'll, we'll catch a little bit of it all today. Um, that, uh, that, that word cerise might have come from the German word kirika, which is originated with the Greek uh, kiriki, meaning of the Lord, of the Lord's house. Jeez, man, I can hardly speak English. <laughs> uh, but some scholars have an alternate origination for cerise, um, and that it could have come from the Anglo-Saxon kirk, which came from the Latin word for, uh, the Latin word circus, for circle or ring, since people often formed a circle as they met. Um, I take some special pleasure in the meaning of church having so much in common with circus. I think it's very appropriate. So the church started to grow. Uh, Specifically, God's spirit inspired and grew the church. It started with roughly 120 believers, but Acts continues to list out the additions. 241, about 3,000 were added to the number that day. 
247, the Lord added to their number daily. 514, more and more men and women believed and were added to their number. 67, a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. 942, many people believed. And on and on. It grew. But why did God grow this particular group? Again, why the church? Why this particular circus and the clowns that come with it? Most of us accept that God is all-powerful and could choose any method he wanted to bring redemption and healing to the whole earth. God spoke everything into existence. He's a good father who did everything he could for his creation. He sacrificed, he bled, he was vulnerable and caring, revealing his heart. And he actually foreshadowed this amazing plan of sacrifice from the moment Adam and Eve rejected him. Genesis 3.21, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. That was the first recorded death, but he actually provided the blood to deal with the consequences, covering their guilt and shame, a foreshadowing of Christ. He was our loving dad who did everything and anything to demonstrate that love. And he chose to overlook those horrific offenses of his humans, and then he uses those very people as his representatives on earth. After giving everything we couldn't, offering up his son to be tormented and tortured and killed, he turns to the very people who rejected him time and again, excuses us, and sets us up as his agents. Now, I've had the opportunity to manage many, many people over the years in my different professional roles. Uh, I've overseen some really awful employees during that time. Uh, none of them here. <laughs> of course not. Um, one of my employees would sleep on the job sometimes right in front of me. Um, many of our employees did the bare minimum, had no interest in even the slightest form of care for their job. Uh, we've run into a few of those. One particular gentleman uh, I hired for an early shift. He was responsible for opening up the business at 6.30 a.m., uh, and there were often people waiting. In his first week, he was over half an hour late three times. And then, on his last day, he didn't even show up to work. When I pointed out the problem to him via phone, he yelled at me for being too rigid and unforgiving. <laughs> now, imagine that scenario, and what if I had taken his faults on? I accepted the blame as my own. And I gave him a raise and a promotion. Um, I asked him to be the manager of the business in my place. And I put him in charge of training the new recruits. That's crazy. But that's actually what God did on a global scale. So back to that original question, why would he put the clowns in charge? By the way, I, um, I've already trademarked Northview Community Circus. Um, <laughs> pretty sure that's going to pay off here pretty soon. Why would he use messed up people for such a critical endeavor, spreading the good news? We'll start to answer that question in a minute, but I think it has something to do with that loving character that he demonstrated through all of history, forgiving and teaching, providing for the children he loves, but also growing and empowering us as well. In my own personal journey, I continued to struggle with the church. Like most of us, I accepted what I knew of the environment I was raised in as normal. I didn't personally have any problems with other believers or other traditions, but I took on the issues that my parents carried as if they were my own. 
I had no idea how much the very core things of my belief were blindly accepted and never questioned or examined. And I'm actually amazed at how many things in my life, even now, follow that pattern. So as I branched out into my own college experience and beyond, I clung to the same set of biases and beliefs. Churchgoers were hypocrites. They were phony and judgmental. During college, friends that I respected and enjoyed would go to church and occasionally I'd follow along and be part of it. I would even appreciate the teaching and truth shared there. But I missed some important things because of how I grew up. I didn't understand the beauty of musical worship together. My family was the kind that would stoically sit through a rock concert. I can't totally blame them. They were trying to distance themselves from the excesses of their youth and it still held them in guilt and shame. But that translated to a lack of expressiveness, a lack of engagement, and a lack of understanding about how corporate worship works or what praise and honor can be, especially on a larger scale when shared as a group. So I chose to participate when I could focus on truth, on knowledge, on the things that appealed to the parts of my personality that I was confident in, things that I could control. I did my best to stay distant from others because I simply didn't care about them, at least on any level that made intimacy appealing. On the whole, I was incredibly self-centered. I didn't find any value in church because there was very little in it that gave me what I wanted or made me comfortable or happy. I probably wouldn't have admitted that at the time, but it's still very true. I didn't understand the purpose for the church. I didn't understand my role in it. I remember speaking to an acquaintance who ran youth ministry for a local church. And not that I wanted to, but I knew I'd be good at it, at youth ministry. I'd already had a relatively successful career working with youth in the, the secular world. And he told me pretty bluntly that they wouldn't want me even if I was open to it. That stung. He could see that I didn't understand what discipling kids meant because I wasn't willing to be a disciple myself. And all my limited perspective allowed me to see in that moment was someone who judged me and was threatened by my greatness. <laughs> but he was right. During this time, I acknowledged God with my lips, but I was running from him with my heart. I simply didn't, do what he, didn't want to do what he was asking me to do. So that defined my relationship with other believers. I looked a lot like my parents did 25 years earlier, hanging out with my friends, being comfortable, not owning the challenge that God kept trying to mold me through other people, the church. So what are those challenges that he brings? Again, back to that question, what is the purpose of the church? Why is it so important? So whether we agree with God's design or not, here's the simple facts. The church is God's desired vehicle for growing people and reaching the lost. He's given us his Holy Spirit, one-third of the Trinity. If you want to know more about the Holy Spirit and his association, go back and listen to James' message last week. But he gave us the Holy Spirit to continue to make us the example of his kingdom on earth. That we'll be like Christ to the degree that our brothers and sisters, the lost, the hurting, the broken, <clears throat> will have a glimpse of his love and his healing in us. That if we are his kingdom here, we will act out those restored relationships now, not just someday after we pass from this earth. 
I don't know if you just caught the implication of the things I just said. We live his kingdom now. And I see two ways of looking at that. We have to be Jesus here and now to other people. Or we get to be Jesus here and now to other people. I tended to fall into that first statement, if I'm honest. And that's what I was running from from so long, the have to. Seriously, though, why does he ask us to do this on his behalf? Jesus is so much better at loving people. Why doesn't he just do it perfectly himself and leave me out of it? Let me watch football in peace. Or escape into the video games. Or bury myself in a career where I can achieve power and influence. Or, or, or. I am not a good Jesus. Um, I really do like to act as my own God, though. But I am not a good Jesus. And that's why church is necessary. Why he chose to put us in that role is to grow me to be more like Jesus. 1 John 2, 4 through 6. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth isn't in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, that we, know we, are, we may know that we are in him. Whoever he says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Where to be Jesus. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And in a passage that encapsulates so well all that's happening that I'm speaking about right now, Titus chapter 3 uh, through 4. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with, rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That so describes me. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. We have that spirit. I am utterly convinced through scriptures like these, uh, my own experience and being privy to the experiences of others, uh, we are put with other imperfect people who are trying to want to love God and love like God in order to grow us and shape us and mold us into his form. Here's an illustration to help bring it home. So many of us still think that it's possible to lose those few extra pounds by wishing and wanting. I will say, I should eat better today, or I should do some extra cardio, as if that has any impact. And when I hit snooze on the alarm clock at 5 a.m. instead of heading to the gym, that should doesn't mean a darn thing to actually burning calories. 
In the same way, I can want to become more like Jesus, but that doesn't actually do anything to make me more like him until I begin to face the discipline of practice. Until I do what the Holy Spirit prompts me, I will continue to be a spiritual couch potato. Jesus promised to give us the Holy Spirit when we follow him. He promised. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. He teaches, he helps, he guides, he steers us. Romans 8:11 confirms, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He is ever present, and when you choose to cooperate and follow him, he will show you opportunities to grow to become more like Christ. Just as Jesus relied on the spirit and the will of the Father, so we're encouraged to do the same. We're encouraged to interact with other believers doing the same thing. In the teaching process, you will encounter people who are difficult to love, people who need patience and kindness and forgiveness. They will look different. They will misunderstand what the Bible says and means. They will live lives that will make you cringe. You'll be overlooked. You'll be treated unkindly. You'll be hurt. Those very things... Uh, the things I just listed are the opportunities to choose to look more like Jesus. That's what I shied away from when it came to church. If you take well-intentioned, ordinary, challenging people, and you introduce them to other people who bear their own difficulties and flaws, you necessarily create friction in their interactions. You know this process. It's called relationship. Relationship is the soil in which change starts to take root. There's no age limit, no experience level requirements, and there's no retirement date when Jesus said, hey, you've arrived, you're done, you can take it easy now. Personally, I've never seen growth happen without challenge. And if we shy away from hard things, we're turning off our ability to grow and be molded into the likeness of Jesus. Okay, so we've heard all these pep talks before, you say. If you're skeptical of church or you've been burned by people before, you're probably still asking yourself, do we really need others to please God, to follow him? Our God is enough, right? Jesus is all I need to live right and be fulfilled. That is true in so many ways. God is for you in ways that people never can be. But if we jump back to that creation story, God, in the perfect harmony of the Trinity, created the first human. He spent time face-to-face with him. God created Adam to partake in that same harmony and intimacy of Father, Son, and Spirit. And that was enough. Just Adam and God hanging out, bros, in perfection, without conflict. But even in that relationship, God saw another way. God pauses to demonstrate to Adam that he had a need for something else. Adam realized he was missing something. God points it out. It isn't good for him to be alone. But he wasn't alone, was he? He had God. What more could he want? God's aware of the benefit of other humans. Eve and the subsequent additions to the population were necessary in God's eyes. They're part of his creation plan. Not because God was lacking. Those other humans would be additional instruments of purpose and maturity. Even before rebellion broke things, relationship was the key to learning and changing and a more robust environment for God's people. 
Uh, teacher and theologian Neil Anderson says, aloneness can lead to loneliness. God's preventative for loneliness is intimacy, meaningful, open, sharing relationships with one another. In Christ, we have the capacity for the fulfilling sense of belonging, which comes from an intimate fellowship with God and with other believers. Yes, we still need others. It was part of the original plan from the beginning, and it still is. The church is the collective of people moving toward Jesus. They provide the occasions to put on Christ-like qualities, to learn unity and harmony and love. Those things require people. It is impossible to do solo. Other-centeredness isn't the same without others. It's just centeredness. The greatest deterrent, of course, is the focus on self. We enjoy the control that we have when we don't have to give it up for the good of someone else. We're resistant when it costs us. Tim Keller calls us out. You are a generation most, you are the generation most afraid of real community because it inevitably limits freedom and choice. Get over your fear. Being active and engaged in the body of believers may limit our unfettered freedom, but it allows us to live more and more with the love that the world needs to receive. Christ's love. Unfortunately, that was one of the reasons I didn't want to be part of the church. I didn't want my freedom limited. I had a better plan. One that didn't cost me something I was unwilling to give. And the other reason I didn't want to embrace church, those darn people again. When my sister-in-law was dying of cancer, her church friends encouraged her to repent because God was clearly punishing her for something egregious she'd done. People. We've all seen prominent church leaders abuse their power for their own gain. People. We've all seen, I'm sorry, I've watched friends and relatives who needed to hear Christ's message of grace ignored because of the mistakes they'd made. People. Too often, outspoken Christians were phony and superficial and seemed to cause more harm to the lost world than bringing light to it. People. I saw well-meaning believers attempt to heal and then blame the sick person for their lack of faith. People. Those are all very real situations. I didn't want to be one of those people. I didn't even want to be associated with anyone like that. And so I kept at arm's length my upbringing, my observations, my fear kept me from the church for a long time. But there was a major problem in my thinking. The thing I'd overlooked time and again, it wasn't the people's church. I mean, it was by the way I treated it as a consumer, but it wasn't people's church, it was God's church. Built by the Holy Spirit, it's Jesus' bride. I, did, I could disagree with that all I wanted. I could avoid and ignore and run, but it's still his vehicle for building his kingdom here and now. When I finally surrendered myself to the Lord and told him I'd give up my will for his, the first thing he began to work on was that it wasn't good for me to be alone. I knew loneliness, but I, I wanted someone to solve it for me other than me. Instead, I had to embrace those I had demonized. I had to actively love others, not just be loved. 
Over a period of a year or so, the Holy Spirit worked on my heart. I started to see from a new viewpoint. I learned some shocking things about myself and others. Uh, you might be surprised to find out that I am one of those hypocrites that I hated. I know, hard to believe. I found out that I could be phony and superficial. I judged people wrongly to make myself feel superior. I withheld grace from those who need it, oftentimes those closest to me. I wanted influence for my own gain. I don't know if you noticed, but those were all the things that I'd already mentioned that I despised in others. In Acts, I resembled Ananias and Sapphira far more than Barnabas. If you don't know those stories, comparison's not super flattering. But by listening to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, I changed. It seems wild that the same Spirit who coached Peter to preach and build the church and emboldened Paul to share with kings and emperors was working on me in the most basic of interactions. I chose to step back into the church and slowly take steps to enter relationship with others, recognizing them as brothers and sisters. I began to actually love, sacrifice, put others first, and view them as more important. After 18 years of allowing God to sharpen and shape me through his bride, I still struggle to live out love for him and the humans that he's pursuing. I hear it's a journey, though, and that gives me hope. Truth is, without the encouragement and conviction and catalyst that comes from my fellow ministers and my friends in every stage of faith, I would be stunted in my growth. Okay, fine. More stunted in my growth. <laughs> it's no secret that the church is broken. I just went through a few of the ways that it can be dysfunctional and harmful. We all know it. It's hard to imagine being whole and perfect when it's populated by vessels that are cracked and broken themselves. From my perspective, based on what I've walked through, even when we're redeemed and been reconciled with God, there are particular common areas we need to dive into and accept the convicting and correcting work of the Holy Spirit. If you haven't identified any takeaways this morning yet, perhaps you'll find some application here. First, let's deal with humility. Holy Spirit helps us us to face our own issues, no matter the mask we've covered them with. Do we need to face a change? Ask yourself a few questions. Do you view those people you look down on or struggle to understand as more worthy than yourself? Do you see them as more deserving of good things? What would happen if you invested in someone who irritated you and that you actually avoid? Could you pray in gratitude and thankfulness for the hard circumstances that you're stuck in? Maybe a little more practical. As you're driving, what if you gave way to the jerk in that car that's trying to get ahead of you? Holy Spirit will coach you in humility. Let's talk about grace and mercy. Offering love that is undeserved and withholding consequences that are deserved are precisely the actions and attitudes Jesus laid out for us. How many times have we deliberately turned that around to withhold what is needed and instead offer punishment to others? Can you set it aside? Welcome people in that you keep pushed away. 
Can you embrace your neighbor regardless of how they look, what they smoke, who they sleep with, or who they vote for? I can promise you, if you take those steps to choose grace and mercy, the Holy Spirit's going to do the rest. And lastly, forgiveness. What would it look like if you actually let go of your claim to personal hurt? Not just once, but over and over. You kind of hang on to pain and injury to keep cultivating anger with a person. We often harbor resentment. It is so easy to justify unforgiveness when you've been betrayed, when you didn't do anything to deserve your treatment, when the actions against you were extreme and horrible and personal. I heard of a guy that went through something like that, and he loved the perpetrators anyway. Simply start with a small thing, something that you've hang on to. Set it aside. Don't pick it back up. Then, voice your forgiveness out loud. Would that be growth? Would that help you step, help you one step closer to looking like Jesus? In all these things, um, I do have a microphone, but don't listen to me. These are my issues, and they might not be yours. Instead, listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. Listen to the Holy Spirit's prompt as he addresses humility, grace, mercy, unforgiveness in your life. Listen as he calls you to other broken humans. Listen as he calls you to be engaged as part of the church, one of the clowns in this crazy circus. I'll call the worship team up. Would you close with me in prayer? Lord, you know the struggles we all bear when it comes to relationships. They're hard. They're messy. They can be great. They can be terrible. You know better than anyone how difficult we can be and the challenge of coming together. Unity seems like an impossibility at times. And yet you give us your spirit to live by. We thank you that we have a supernatural helper to encourage us, to change us, to make us more like your son. God, help us to be receptive to your voice. To make it plain so that we can understand. Give us an understanding and a hearing ear. Help us to have the strength to follow your word, follow your voice. Listen to those prompts that the Holy Spirit gives. Recognize them for what they are and take action. Father, make us your church when we gather and when we're apart. Amen. Let me read from Hebrews. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. 
encourage you. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Listen to those prompts. Take action. Be good to each other. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being here today. Uh, Go. Have a great week. You're dismissed.